Thanks for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Matt Gardner, the Vice President of Digital Media and Emerging Technology for the National Hockey League's St. Louis Blues. Matt has a very holistic approach to how digital is immersed into so many facets of the Blues organization. I think what you're seeing with technology in general in this digital age is that there's a lot of silos that are, are being shattered. Uh, you're not so much a just a sponsorship department anymore, or just a ticket sales department. You've got a lot of different elements tied into that. You're leveraging a business intelligence team to make sure that you're using the right insights, a digital team that's pulling together all of your best opportunities to, to reach an audience. That audience connection is very important, and there is a lot of passion involved when it comes to sports fans. However, Matt actually credits his time away from sports as being crucial to his career success. I worked for a couple of digital agencies, and I did that for, for one main purpose, and it was I had kind of come up on, on the content side of the business and, and writing and um, producing content. I really wanted to learn the, the business of digital and how it was being applied. As he goes about applying strategies, he is constantly receiving input and advice from others. And while occasionally the players may drop their gloves on the ice, Matt's NHL experience is less adversarial. The benefit is that um, we have 31 other teams that we can reach out to for best practices. You always have somebody you can talk to of, of you know, how did you do this? How are you able to deliver this initiative and bring in a corporate partner, drive revenue? What was your fan engagement like? Matt also discusses what that second piece of his title, Emerging Technology, means. The big thing that is obviously emerging more and more every year, especially where we are right now, is venue technology. And that's something that's being looked at right now because of the ability to integrate things like mobile ordering and other opportunities for you to have a more personalized experience with a fan. Of course, no conversation with someone who works in hockey would be complete without discussing the NHL's ultimate prize, the Stanley Cup. I was fortunate enough to be in Boston for game seven when we won. I was able to to be out on the ice and, and hoist the cup uh, on the ice in TD Garden, which uh, is just, I, I pinch myself even today thinking about it. Before we get started, please take a moment to give us a rating and review wherever you are listening. As always, don't forget to visit credentialsonly.com for show notes about this episode and to join our email list. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Matt Gardner. Matt, thanks so much for joining me. As Vice President of Digital Media for St. Louis in the NHL, did you get a day with the Stanley Cup when the Blues won in 2019? I did. We had uh, a pretty incredible year winning the Stanley Cup for the very first time for St. Louis. Uh, it was such a remarkable thing for the city to, to watch it all unfold and to see people who had waited lifetimes and generations to, to have the cup in St. Louis. And so I was very fortunate to, to have some time. Uh, I was able to bring some family to St. Louis and spend some, uh, some, some great time uh, having the cup and, uh, you know, lots of different celebrations that we had over the course of many, many months. Um, and it was, uh, it was a pretty remarkable time for us. So in case someone's not familiar with the tradition, you know, the, the Stanley Cup, first of all, is an incredible trophy itself because if you go to Pittsburgh, you will see all the Vince Lombardi trophies that the Steelers have won. But the, the Stanley Cup doesn't stay with that team. Once you've won it, you have it for that year, and then you give it back. So what does the tradition hold then for that winning team? We had the cup um, mostly from the time that we won it on June 12th of last year, uh, all the way through opening night in, in October. Aside from a couple times where it, it traveled to go to the NHL awards in Vegas, um, it had to go uh, be engraved with all the names of, uh, of our, uh, our players and our staff on there. But beyond that, we, we had the cup and, and almost every single minute of every day was accounted for. We, we got that cup out to as many people as we could in the community, had as many touch points as we could to, to give people a chance to finally touch it, to see it, to take a photo. Uh, it traveled uh, all over the place to going to um, all of our different players' houses and uh, our, our hockey ops, our coaches. So it was in, it was in Canada, it was in the US, it was in Russia, it was in Sweden. 
Um, and it was just a really incredible time. We, we covered the whole thing from, from day one all the way through. We had some fantastic coverage, um, some amazing content come out of it. And you only win the, your first Stanley Cup one time. And so we wanted to make the most of it and make sure we captured everything and didn't miss a single thing. And I do want to talk more about how you did that with the work piece, but you said you had family come in and, and just for you to be able to be a part of that and kind of have your time with the cup. God, I think that's as much of a pinnacle as somebody's going to have in a career in sports. How, how was that opportunity for you? It's, uh, it's pretty incredible. I think all of us that work in sports, uh, we want that championship. And myself, having worked in sports uh, 18 years, uh, to be able to finally get to that point, I was fortunate enough to be in Boston for Game 7 when we won. I was able to, to be out on the ice and, and hoist the cup uh, on the ice in TD Garden, which uh, is just, I, I pinch myself even today thinking about it. Um, and then just having those different opportunities to be able to celebrate uh, with my family, to be able to celebrate with my staff. Um, I know all the hard work everybody puts into uh, working in sports, the, the grind and the day-to-day of, of the hours that we put in and, and, and all the time and effort and everything that just goes into producing a championship product. Um, it was really a remarkable thing. And it's something that was a year that just I'll remember for the rest of my life. You said you got to hoist it. How heavy is the Stanley Cup? I will tell you that uh, when you have that adrenaline pumping and you're so excited, um, it, it seemed like it's light as a feather. And then you hold it uh, at another time and you have it like down, you know, holding it down by your waist and something and you're trying to lift it. Um, it's, you know, I think it's like 70 or I'm sorry, 37 pounds or something like that. Um, but when, when the adrenaline's there, it, it, it feels like nothing. Part of the significance of the opportunity to be with the cup is the way that People in hockey avoid the Stanley Cup. And I don't even think it's superstition. It's almost like a reverence of like, if you haven't earned the right to be with the Cup, you're not going to spend time with it. How would you, as a hockey person, describe that Cup experience without having won it? If you haven't won the Cup, you're, you kind of want to just uh, acknowledge that it's it's around, but um, you don't want much to uh, to do with it until you've you've actually won it until your name is actually on it so um you know it's it's one of those things that we don't have to worry about now and uh we we can say that we're Stanley cup champions and uh you know now we're working for the next one you've been with the blues for nearly a decade what is your role as that vp of digital media yeah so my role uh, overseeing uh, two different areas digital media and emerging technology our, our digital media crew oversees uh, everything we're doing on our, our websites, social media, mobile app, um, for not only the St. Louis Blues, but for two venues, Enterprise Center, where the Blues play. And then we have a 3,100-seat theater called uh, Stiefel Theater that's, that's attached to Enterprise Center. So our crew is uh, you know, part of our marketing department, and we work very closely with a lot of different departments, just in o- overall all of our day-to-day activations that we have going on. Working across, uh, you know, different departments like uh, sponsorship and sales and retail and um, making sure that our messaging is getting across. Um, But in the last few years, working to develop more robust content strategies. Um, We've in the past few years, we've built out a much larger uh, video department. We've built out a video and business intelligence. And so um, things have definitely evolved over time. And in the last uh, couple of decades, I've, I've worked in this industry and so we have great opportunities to really send more personalized messages to our to our audience now. And then the emerging tech side of, of what I do is, is really all of that forward thinking initiatives of innovation and ways that we're going to continue to push the business forward and making sure that we're taking advantage of any type of touch point that we can have with a fan and leveraging different things like augmented reality, uh, virtual reality, predictive gaming now as we're trying to, to get ready for sports betting in the States. Um, esports. There's there's so many different touch points that we have, and and even when fans come in the building, make sure that we're using things like mobile ordering. Um, coming out of COVID and and you know pandemic related uh, things of making sure things are as contactless as possible. So it's really just trying to continue to evolve the business and making sure you're putting the best foot forward to be ready for for what comes next. You mentioned that you guys are part of the marketing department, and 
I'm always curious to know on the digital media side because it, it feels like it could easily fall into marketing or a commercial team or a communications team. Is that commonplace within the NHL, that that, that digital piece is within marketing? Yeah, it is. But I think that what you're seeing is uh, digital is becoming a part of everything. You know, at one point it was, I think when I started, um, you know, 2002 or so, digital was a subset. It was a subset of marketing or it was a subset of communication or whatever you're doing. Now digital kind of is is in, in around everything that uh, that you're working on. And so while we're part of the marketing department, we're really engaged with just about every asset that uh, we have available in our business and, and making sure that we're um, continuing to push all of those areas forward. It's, I think what you're seeing with technology in general in this digital age is that there's a lot of silos that are, are being shattered. Uh, you're not so much a just a sponsorship department anymore, just a ticket sales department. You've got a lot of different elements tied into that. You're leveraging a business intelligence team to make sure that you're using the right insights, a digital team that's pulling together all of your best opportunities to, to reach an audience. And so those walls are kind of being uh, crushed a little bit and you have everybody that's working together a lot more um, uh, collectively as part of your overall day-to-day efforts. If you would, can you expand on what you mean by business intelligence? You've mentioned that a couple of times and I think it's a, an important concept, but might not be familiar. Yeah, so business intelligence is really just using the data and analytics uh, for decision-making purposes. Our, our BI team is is taking uh, every touch point that we could have with a fan from uh, retail purchases, concession purchases, uh, ticket data, um, online activity, and really trying to build a fan profile so that they we can more closely target that fan with messaging that is most relevant to them. You know, I think the the days of um, utilizing all of your digital elements just to uh, to hit as many people as possible are, are are quickly dwindling, and finding ways that you can have one to one conversations with your fan base and your customers is really what we're all striving for. So, day to day, our our business intelligence team is is breaking down um, all the data that we're collecting to be able to make more informed decisions on what we want to send to our fans versus uh, sending one message out. Um, you know, if, if we want to hit a, a family offer to come to a game uh, or a student night offer or a military offer, those sometimes are, are very different audiences. So instead of hitting somebody who's a college student with a family night offer, we want to make sure that we're, we're crafting the right message that's going to be most relevant to them. On the website, you're housed within the NHL's overall website and each team is within that NHL network. How is that relationship between you guys as an individual organization and that league office on the digital media side? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of relationships that are in play and, and the league has a um, great partnership um, and actually ownership stake with uh, Disney streaming services as, as part of our, our overall provider of our environment, not only our website, but our mobile app as well. So there's always a lot of conversations as, as a product, an NHL product, we try to continue to move the business forward and, and what are the, the biggest priorities and things that are, are being done. Um, you know, even as we speak, things like sports betting really starting to pop up across many states more and more. What is that overall strategy going to be? There's a lot of different things that are coming like player and puck tracking technology where we're going to be able to deliver a lot more data points to our fans. And so those are the types of things that we're, we're always striving to do better. And uh, the league does a great job of getting us information and informed decisions. And even to this return to play that we're going to have here in a few weeks, we're going to have uh, some additional ways that we can touch our fans that, uh, you know, are going to lead to some different opportunities long-term. Have seen it both ways with the league kind of serving as that hosting for, for websites and then everybody kind of fending for themselves. What are the benefits and, and or constraints of that model specifically for websites? Yeah. You know, the, the, the benefit is that um, we have 31 other teams that we can reach out to for best practices. Um, it's a great thing you see across team sports in general. Uh, my prior life being in the NBA, you saw it there as well. Um, but uh, you always have somebody you can talk to of, of, you know, how did you do this? How are you able to, to deliver this initiative bring in a corporate partner drive revenue? What was your fan engagement like? 
So, um, you know, if, if you see something somebody's tried and they realize it wasn't successful as, as what you thought, you've got somebody you can talk to about it. Um, you know, the, the downside is, as it, it can be in this type of environment is, um, you know, you're a little less limited in terms of some of your creativity you can have um, on your platform and, and with some of your devices. But the great thing is uh, there's, there are a lot of ways to, um, to still deliver pretty incredible results um, you know, given the landscape that you're working within. Does that extend to the app where it's one centralized app that kind of has a skin unique for each team, or do you guys all develop your own app? Yeah. You know, I think that, um, we have the NHL app is, is being used by a majority of, of NHL teams. Um, the big thing that is obviously, um, emerging more and more every year, especially where we are right now, is venue technology. And that's something that's being looked at right now because of the ability to integrate things like mobile ordering and um, other opportunities for you to have a more personalized experience with a fan. There's a, there's a lot of different areas we're exploring right now because we want to be able to um, reward fans for their purchasing um, activities they have. So if you're, a, if you're one of our season ticket holders, you come to a game, you always buy a popcorn well, after, you know, buying four popcorns, we would love to be able to track all that data and, and give you the fifth one for free. So that's the type of thing that we're wanting to do to provide uh, additional value to our fans um, and, and just deliver actionable items that are most relevant to them and, and their experience with Blues Hockey. You talk about being able to call on the other teams in the league, you know, on ice, it's hockey. We, we see some fists being thrown and, you know, it's, it's not necessarily all friendly, but is it pretty friendly on the front office side in, in terms of growing the sport together through digital media? Very friendly. We have a, we have a Slack channel that all 32 teams are on um, where we're always talking, always sharing best, best practices. Um, there, there's a lot of things that right now is we're all looking to, uh, you know, get the sport going again, hopefully soon have fans back in our building, the safety protocols that we're putting in place, um, you know, when we don't have fans, what is that second screen experience going to be? Or how are we engaging with our fans when they're not able to, to come to our, our games? And so those conversations are ongoing. It, it happens on a daily basis. And above and beyond just um, NHL teams, uh, we're, we're talking to other teams in, in our city, other, other leagues. Um, I've Within the last week, I've probably talked to five or six different teams from um, other leagues just on other different initiatives that we've done or they've done. And so there's there's a great camaraderie across sports um, that uh, is, is really great to be able to leverage uh, when you, you have an idea of something you want to do, but you're trying to get some uh, justification and, uh, you know, best practices of, of what's worked. What have you found to be successful in making those contacts, in particular outside of hockey with those other teams and franchises to be able to tap into those resources? Yeah, you know, just networking, um, you know, in, in normal years where, you know, we're attending some conferences um, that are helpful just to put a, a face with a name, get a better understanding of what somebody does, um, you know, and, and every day we have vendors reaching out to us, pitching products and, you know, saying, hey, I work with this team, I work with that team. And so there's something I have an inkling of interest in. I I will reach out to a team. And if I don't know somebody, a team, I'm going to try to kind of connect the dots and, and get uh, put in place with somebody that I can talk to. And um, those conversations are always so easy because um, what typically happens if I reach out to a team and I'm I, you know, Hey, I want some information on this. They'll usually say, Oh, by the way, I've been meeting to talk to the blues about something you're doing. And so there's a nice trade off there that always works out really well. There is a little bit of the uh, Kevin Bacon six degrees of separation. You're you're not too many people away from somebody at a different team, are you? Absolutely. <laughs> Within your own organization, how many people are on the staff there that that work on the digital media side? Uh, you know the the wild thing is we've we've grown pretty great over the last few years. When I started in uh, 2012, um, there was one person besides myself on the, the digital side of things, we were able to grow. Um, I'll say we also had uh, two graphic designers and we had two video people and those video people were primarily doing game presentation elements. We weren't producing a lot of content across um, all of our, our channels. 
uh, now I think combined digital creative and video production more or less as our content unit. Um, we we've had uh, 18 or 19 people as part of that process. So it's been a, it's been a great opportunity for us to, um, to dive into some new areas and, and new ways of uh, engaging with our fan base. There's a lot of voices in the room. If you've got a team that size and in particular in the creative space, a lot of ideas, how do you manage all that input and make sure that everybody feels heard, but you get everybody going in the same direction? You know, I, I welcome ideation. I think it's, it's so important. And, uh, you know, most more often than not a, a bad idea leads to a really, really good one. Um, and so we, we do have a lot of ideas and, and we can have dialogue continue all the time. Um, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, we try to focus things in on a couple of core buckets. One is, is going to, what's going to have the best engagement for our fan base. Um, is there a revenue component tied to it? You know, how will this impact ticket sales? How will this tie in with a corporate partner we can, we can bring in for an initiative? Um, what can we learn about our fans? And um, collectively through those processes, we, we have to kind of figure out what is of the best time for our, our staff to develop something. Because if we're, if we're doing a new video series or we're shooting a video feature or something, there's a lot of work that goes into that. And, um, you know, is it, is it a long form initiative? Is it a short form for social? Um, those conversations happen often to try to figure out where we need to put our resources in order to have the most success. And so, uh, oftentimes there, there are so many ideas you can never really get to everything that you want to do. And it also depends on team availability. You know, are we home? Are we away? You know, when can we get access to players? And so there's, there's a lot of things that we have to kind of keep in mind as we're, we're coming up with ideas. Some, some we're able to execute right away. Some we, we may shelve for six months and realize that we need to wait for the off season to tackle this one or the start of next season. And so it's, it's just always great to have that bank of ideas that you can go back to when you're, you're needing something fresh. Do you have focused brainstorming sessions and is it something that you, you do kind of periodically or is it a regular thing or is there just a Slack channel that, Hey, if you have an idea, throw it in here and we'll circle back to it when we can. Yeah. All the above. And, you know, take, take current situation, you know, we're, we're, we know the NHL season is, is going to start right after the, the first of the year. But uh, we still don't have a clear understanding of what access is going to be um, because there's going to be protocols in place in order to um, protect our players and, and limiting the number of people that have access to those players. So once we know that, we're going to brainstorm and, and figure out what our content plan is going to be, what our, our schedule is going to be, you know, how often are we going to be on the road? What does an away game look like versus a, a home game? And we did the same thing over the summer when we were in the bubble in Edmonton. We, once we had an idea of what that bubble looked like, who we were going to have embedded in the bubble um, on the fly, we had to come up with a very different plan than how we had executed um, before the season went pause. So those things happened regularly. I can tell you, you know, I'm getting ready to enter season 10 and no uh, two seasons have been alike. It's uh, the, the cycle of a season is the same. Um, but the, the, the meat of, of what you will do over the course of the season always changes. And I think you always have to be flexible like that to, to get the best result. How important is it that you can extend the lifespan of a piece of content and take it and maybe put it on the app, but also on the website, also on social and even in venue in stadium and, and all the different opportunities you have, I guess, in arena, excuse me, but you occasionally get the stadium games in the NHL too. Yeah, it's, it's very beneficial. And, and sometimes I think you try to um, make things a little different based on the platform that you're using. And, and other times you just resource wise, you're like, this is, this is how it's going to be across the board. And so when you can be unique platform by platform, you absolutely do. Because uh, if we can deliver something that's going to have the, the best results on, on Facebook versus, you know, a feature we may show in venue, um, that's important. And uh, so Anytime you can leverage something, uh, and it's funny how things have changed because it used to be, we're going to show this in venue first, and then after it's aired in venue, we're going to put it out on social. And now it's 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 definitely flipped, and we try to get out quick to social in a timely fashion wherever we can. But uh, being able to utilize those assets in different places uh, is is pretty important. The creative part, the content that the fan sees, is the fun part. You've also though got 
the bells and whistles, the technical piece behind all that. You know, you've got to have an app that functions and, and works well and does all the things you need to do, both for the consumer, but also on the business side that's tracking all the information you need to do. How do you manage that technical side of it? Yeah, you know, it's it, sometimes you, you have to prioritize how how you're going to do things. And, um, you know, what is what is of the biggest benefit at the time you're doing it? Is it we need to get this out? quickly to social because that's where the impact is going to be? Um, or is it, we have exclusivity to this, this is content no one else is going to have. Let's debut this on our website so that we're getting, you know, more ad impressions and getting, you know, partner dollars off of driving traffic to our, to our site. And that's not only video traffic, but sometimes articles that we're doing or, or anything special. So we tend to analyze these on a one-off basis to figure out what's the best fit um, and then essentially just develop kind of what our rollout plan is going to be. The opportunity with a long season like you guys normally have, let's not talk about 2020 or even 21 is going to be a little bit shorter than normal, but during a long season, there's opportunities to pivot if the strategy isn't working. But also the digital media space changes so much in the span of six months. How do you and your team keep up with that and, make these alterations, which you really have to do on the fly because something that's a week old and digital can feel like a month old sometimes. Yeah, we try to always keep things very flexible. Um, I will say a few years ago, we would get into some deals with corporate partners where we would sign in and do 10 episodes of this series and 12 episodes of this series. And that, uh, that becomes painful when you've developed a concept and it hasn't done as well as you thought it would be. It would, it would do. And, and now you have you know, eight more episodes of this you have to produce versus doing content that is a little more, um, you know, what fans want. You're passing up on some good opportunities because you have to dive into things that are, are under contract. So we've tried to keep things as flexible as possible so that we can make sure that we're, we're maintaining the ability to, to on the fly, if a great opportunity comes about, um, if we make a trade over the course of, uh, of a season or a player emerges or just this fantastic storyline comes out of nowhere, we can pivot and we can focus more on that and then find ways of tying in our corporate partners and, and other um, priorities that we need to make sure we have in place. But being flexible, changing things up, uh, you're absolutely right. I think social is... Uh, is a place right now that, uh, you know, if you've seen it a few times, then it's, it starts to wear on you. And so you've got to keep things fresh. You've got to keep things new. And so it's a challenge sometimes to come up with things in a creative fashion, uh, 24 seven to, to make sure that you're standing out and, and cutting through the noise of everything that's out, that's out there in social, but it's just important to have that creativity and brainstorming always happening to come up with new ways of doing it. Part of that is just R and D and, and, keeping an eye on what everybody else is doing, but there is so much noise. I mean, there's so much content. There are hundreds of professional sports teams in the United States and all of them are producing unbelievable content or have unique things within their apps and everything. How do you go about being able to take in these best practices from other teams to make sure you're aware of it, to then go have that networking conversation and say, Hey, how'd you do that? Yeah, you know, part of it, I think, is just having a pretty solid handle on on how you're doing and talking to your content team and make sure that they are also aware of how things are performing. If we're putting effort behind a certain feature or a certain way of doing things and we're either it's not gaining traction or it's losing traction, uh, they need to be aware so that, uh, you know, everyone is brainstorming of, okay, how can we change this up? How can we make things better? Um, you know, you're not going to hit the hit a home run every single time, but um, you won't always try to do things a little better than you did the the time before. And so, having that that connection with the data that's out there, and um, and just always taking a look at, at not only just what other teams are doing or other leagues, but uh, just in general, what's happening in the marketing space on you know social social networks, and those are key things just to always have in mind to spur different ideas and different ways of doing things. You mentioned earlier engagement. I think there's always conversations of what's the better metric here? Is it just follower count or is it engagement? But you did mention engagement. What is it that you value about that as a metric to, to look at? 
I always try to look at an interaction rate. You know, it's uh, you know likes and and you know retweets and everything are are fantastic, but um, you know maintaining a pretty high interaction rate demonstrates that you're you're having an impact on your your fan base. Um, you know, it's that will often lead to decisions on how frequently we're we're posting, and and looking at you know what other teams are doing and what their averages are. Um, you have to constantly be looking at those things to, to understand what your, your users want, you know, how are they relating to a photo posted on Instagram versus a video? You know, what's the impact between your, your feed on Instagram versus Instagram stories. Those are all different types of things that we just have to constantly be evaluating to see, um, if we're, if we're staying on par with where we think we should be, if uh, we're doing better, if we're doing worse and then uh, making adjustments on the fly outside of the wins and losses metric, the other big metric for teams is that revenue piece. How do you guys look to monetize digital media? You know, I think the, the big piece that we've worked on over the years is having a conversation with corporate partners on, on what they want. Um, you know, you're going to get into some relationships where a sponsor uh, wants to promote something. And it's, it has a call to action to it. And it, it's not just a branding play. And so if you're trying to work a logo on a social post, that's never going to fly for that, that partner. So what inventory do you have available that you can offer that partner? And, you know, we have different ad units that we have across our, our website, our mobile app, pre-rolls that run our, our videos on our, on our, um, our channels um, so we will try to shift partners more in that direction. However, if they're just wanting that branding play with the blues, there's great opportunities for us to tie that in with a social post, with a you know different campaign that we have going on. So the biggest thing to begin with is that conversation and get an understanding of what they want to get out of it. That way we can best position them with the, the inventory that we have available that's going to have the biggest impact. Ticket sales are certainly important for the blues, but I would think that that's a bigger piece of the business when it comes to the other properties that you mentioned earlier. How do you use digital to push those events that you guys are hosting and getting those tickets sold? Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. When uh, I first started with the blues, we definitely had to push tickets quite a bit. Um, we, we had to leverage things like family packs and student nights and, uh, promotions and giveaways and, and other things. And, and now we're in a very different place. Um, pandemic aside, you know, winning the cup, we've, we've had a pretty strong sellout streak for, for quite a while now. Um, we've established a waiting list for the first time in, in franchise history. And so we're, we're pivoting the way that we have to position ourselves from that standpoint, but our business um, as a whole, talking about the, the venues as well is, is important. And because, those concerts and other sporting events and uh, you know, comedy and family shows that we have in our buildings. Um, one, I think it's, it's great to keep bringing business to St. Louis and, and bringing people downtown. Um, but two, it supplements everything we're doing on the blues side. So it's, it's always important that we find ways of cross promoting um, through all of our channels when we can in the most appropriate way to, to let people know that uh, these other events, especially since our, our blues fan base is so much larger than what we have on the venue side, when we can leverage our, our blues channels to bring those people in, it's, it's always a pretty good thing for our business. They funnel into you, but is the venue side essentially separate in some ways, especially on the content side and that content creation separate from the blues or is it really just a mix within that one team? Team-wise, it's a mix. So we, we do all of the operation and marketing for both venues. Um, and it's, uh, you know, we, while it's, it's somewhat separate sometimes the way that it's promoted. And again, it, it depends on show by show and a promoter and what they want to do and, and the need for pushing tickets or, you know, the, the show sell out quickly. But um, when we can leverage our blues assets in order to, to give those shows a little bit more of a push, then uh, we certainly do so. I want to get a little bit into the weeds here with you, if you don't mind, and go back to that Stanley Cup season. And, and there was a guest in the digital media space who worked for the NCAA who talked about every season, Nick Hessler, the, the guest, every season it's its own storybook. And I think that's probably true for most people in most sports, but that becomes a different thing when you start to get into the playoffs. And then when you start to get into something like the Stanley Cup finals, 
obviously things get to be a lot different and go at a different pace and take on a different level of importance. How did you guys handle the planning process when you were getting deep into that playoff run? I can tell you that season, the, the planning process was so bizarre. And, and even if I take you back to the, the summer before, we had signed Ryan O'Reilly. We had trade, traded for Ryan O'Reilly. We had signed Tyler Bozak. We had brought back David Perron. Expectations were sky high that we had finally assembled this team that was going to do some amazing things. Season starts and we're playing terrible. And just absolutely like losing games bad uh, games that you, you think that you'd be winning at home um, and, and things were looking bleak and we made a coaching change. Um, and eventually, you know, we were, we started, we got into January of 2019. Um, we were dead last in the league and, and still not looking great. Um, we bring up a rookie goaltender because of some injuries. He gets on a hot streak um, our team, this team that we had assembled thinking they were going to be the ones to, to really bring things together, uh, they start to gel. And so between the coaching change, the rookie goaltender, and this team that's finally come together, we just tear through the month of January and February. I think February we lost one game the whole month. And if we go from dead last to we get in the playoffs um, third in our division, but only a point out of first place. So just an incredible turnaround, worst to first. And then we get into the playoffs and, you know, you think about up to this point in the season, we went from, we've got this team that we really got to build upon because they should have success to they're not doing well at all. Boy, we might not make the playoffs. We may be a high lottery pick in the NHL draft. And then, you're turning a corner again and wow. Okay. This they're the hottest team in the league. So we were frequently changing things, how we were positioning ourselves and you know, the, the highs and lows you see in a fan base, you, you got to adjust and, and make sure that as you're putting things out on social media, you're, you're thinking about that fan, you're thinking about how they're relating to your project winning versus losing and, and what you need to do. So we get into the playoffs on this, this high of highs because of the turnaround that we've had, but not knowing exactly what we're, we're going to do. We play a Winnipeg team that had been great all season. We end up winning that series. The, the momentum is there. And so we can feel with the fan base, like they're, they're coming alive. They're coming alive a little bit more than what they had done simply because this team for us felt like they were in playoff mode in February. And so they, they had to fight night in and night out to, to get back in the race Dallas series in round two was huge because Dallas was also playing really well. Um, that series went seven games. Pat Maroon, the hometown guy, got the the game winner in double overtime to send us to the Western Conference final. Um, and and again, everyone's feeling it, but they know the the road ahead is is still so crazy because we've got a great San Jose team that we have to play. Um, and, and so you're, you're trying to build off a momentum because you, you can feel the city coming alive. And we had played San Jose in the Western Conference Finals a few years before that, didn't play well, but it just felt different this time. And so you're, you're trying to kind of build off of, of all the energy that you're feeling out there. You're, you're seeing the city, you're seeing people wear blues gear. We win that series against San Jose, go to the Stanley Cup Final for the first time in 50 years obviously a big deal very very big deal the moment i got to to st louis in 2012 i would hear people say um you know when we have that parade on market street it wasn't when the blues have that parade it was people were were connected they they really felt they were part of the team and it was when we have the parade so you could just feel the everything was just building and building and building and Again, San Jose, big series. We get through that. We get to the the final against an incredible Boston Bruins team. Um, and the the city was just at a fever pitch. It just nothing like I as a someone who has worked in, in sports for really a long time, I'd never seen anything like it. And so at that point, our strategy is we have to make every single moment count. This we're in uncharted territory. The last time that 
we did this was 1970, uh, you know, and, and so much smaller stage when we were in early in a, an expansion franchise and, and making the Stanley Cup final the first three years. This was so much different, so much bigger, so much building up over time. And so we had a lot of frequent conversation about how we were going to position things. And when we reached the Stanley Cup final, we had graphics prepared we had captions. We knew everything we were going to say because we realized the how historic this could be for the the franchise, and so we wanted to make sure that we were ready. And and then winning, even winning, um, we we were prepared. Those are things you don't you don't want to prepare for. You don't want to talk about because you feel like you're going to jinx the process and everything. But um, you know, there's there's only one opportunity to deliver something of of this historic proportion to a city and. Uh, it was it was exciting and difficult to have those conversations and not feel like you're 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 getting too far ahead of yourself, but really important to make sure you're delivering something that uh, people are going to remember forever. When you talk about the city, obviously the Cardinals have been there for a long time and have plenty of success over the years, but there was a a pride hit. It seemed like when the Rams left St. Louis, and was that an opportunity for you guys or, and how was the reaction within the sports and events business to seeing that walk away from your market? We had a pretty impactful moment um, just days after it was announced that the, the Rams were going to be leaving for Los Angeles. We had a, a blues home game and we had our chairman, Tom Stillman and uh, um, Cardinals president Bill DeWitt the third come out on the ice for a puck drop and Bill DeWitt the third being the Cardinals president was wearing a blues jacket. Our owner, Tom Stillman was wearing a Cardinals jacket and it was just a sense of unity. And still to today's date, people talk about that moment and they talk about how St. Louis's teams were coming together to deliver a message that we're here to stay. We're here to operate as one. And we actually, you know, have done tremendous job with the Cardinals and kind of working together. Um, we have a one nation campaign that we, we work on with them. And so any kind of collaborative thing that we have going with the Cardinals kind of falls under that umbrella. And so uh, ever since then, you've, you've seen a real sense of, of pride for, for both brands and both being a long time tied to St. Louis and, and coming together to know that uh, we're, we're here for the city. Going back to winning the cup in Boston you then get immediately into the celebration business. And obviously there is the post-game post celebration on ice, but then a lot more has to happen on that. Business-wise, you've got merchandise. You talked about the parade on Market Street. Then there is this epic Stanley Cup-only experience of that cup going around the world. From the digital media side, how did you guys navigate that, which – you don't get to do very often. So you're kind of learning as you go, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, for, for a while we were a 24 seven content business. Things were just happening all over the place. And you, you never really knew when a incredible moment was going to happen with the cup. I mean, there was a, I think it was maybe two days after we won uh, our players uh, all just showed up at a St. Louis bar with the cup. And it was a bar that had kind of a balcony patio and it started to circulate online that the cup was at this bar and some fans started to gather in a parking lot. And so all these players are in this balcony outdoor, outdoor deck with the cup and there's hundreds of fans down below. And so we had to quickly get there because it was a great content opportunity. Um, so there was lots of moments like that. We had uh, the, the guys met at um, Anheuser-Busch Brewery one night. Uh, they were able to kind of celebrate there. Just so many unique, genuine moments that as a content team, we would, we would catch wind of and it's, we had to quickly react because it was just unique and it was uh, authentic and just uh, so heartwarming for our fan base to constantly just be smiling because they're seeing these moments they've waited their whole life for. It was just uh, such a great time. In addition to getting time with the cup, like every championship team, you guys get rings for winning. Were you also a recipient of a ring and do you wear it often? Is it in a safe? What's your relationship with this piece of jewelry? 
I, I do have a ring. Um, it's, uh, I, I do have it safely secured and, uh, I, I get it out, uh, every so often just kind of as a, uh, you know, pinch me type moment that, uh, this actually did happen. You know, what's funny is, is during this, uh, COVID time, you've been home more, I've been trying to, to work out a little bit more. And so I, I've lost a little weight and my ring was originally on my, um, like ring finger. Um, and it was very loose. And so I went to try it on my middle finger. Um, and I thought, oh, that's a nice fit. And then I went to get it off and it got stuck a little bit. So I, I panicked for a moment. I finally got it off, but I realized that it's probably not a great idea to, to try to put it on the middle finger again. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you talked about working in the NBA and it, not to describe you as being old, but in digital years, you know, one year of, of real life is about five years in the digital space. So it's been a long time since you were in the NBA in the digital space. But I'm curious to know, just in terms of the atmosphere and the culture of the NBA compared to the NHL, how do you find those two to compare and contrast? Yeah, I, I worked for the Orlando Magic from 2005 to 2008. And I was actually the very first digital only employee for the, the magic. Oh, they yeah. were transitioning and, and basically building a department out of their, their PR team. And so they, at that time they developed an interactive marketing department. And so we had the database marketing side, and then we had the digital side, uh, which at that time was basically websites and, and emails. Cause it was really, MySpace was soon to come, but that was the beginning of the social media era. But um, you know, it's, very, very different um, from that point to to where we we were when I got to the the blues. Um, mostly because of the emergence of social and and um, people were not going directly to your website as quickly. They were consuming that information through other means of of social media and, and then eventually mobile app. So it's. Um, there's been a lot of different layers. If you think of all the social networks that we now manage and and how we're um, segmenting our audience and delivering a more of a unique message versus at that point in time, it was make sure your website is updated, sending an email, you're blasting everyone. And so um, digital has just really been able to, to take things to the next level year over year, things get better, but um, it's been great to, to deliver some, uh, some fun experiences. Um, and, and same thing, trying to take advantage of, of new opportunities and new ways of doing things. When I was with the magic we were um, one of the first teams to broadcast a live stream of summer league. And back then Orlando hosted a, a small summer league as did, I think Boston and, and Utah where teams would a small amount of teams, six to eight teams would go into these markets. They would play. We were, we decided one day that uh, our basketball operations team was recording the game up from a balcony that oversaw our, our practice courts. And uh, I said, why don't we just live stream this? If we have the ability, you know, you don't have to have commentary on anything. Just put, just let people hear the audio, let them hear, you know, sneakers on the courts and the ball bouncing and the guys talking to each other. And we did that. And we were using a message board as kind of a, a soundboard of like what people were talking about. And all of a sudden our magic message board had fans from, Indiana and Miami and all these different markets coming there because they're watching this live feed with no commentary and commenting on what was going on. So day two of that, we, we put broadcasters on there and not typical broadcasters. We put our director of communications and our broadcast sideline reporter. And again, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, hardcore, like play-by-play -play commentary because it was summer league, right? Like, you know, you, you're going to know a few guys on the team, but you're not going to know, you know, this guy who played for a small college that uh, you, you've never heard of. So it was very lighthearted. It was very colorful uh, and it, it drew a lot of attention. So after a couple of years of doing that, that's when you started to see the NBA starting to put summer league games on NBA TV, which then eventually summer league goes to Las Vegas and now it's on ESPN and you can watch almost every game on ESPN plus. And so you know, I'm happy to say like our efforts back then, just utilizing a camera that was already going to be recording and throwing that stream out on, on uh, our website uh, was, you know, allowed us to be a little bit more uh, interesting and unique. And uh, again, I think that's, that's always what you want to do. You, you want to take advantage of whatever opportunities you have in front of you. 
how though do you balance that with being strategic and not spreading yourself too thin? Because there, you could be on TikTok and Pinterest and Twitter and I mean, there's so many platforms, but you don't want to spread yourself too thin. How do you strategically set those priorities and decide where you're going to go? Yeah, I think that's a big that's a that's a big point is making sure that you you understand what your focus is going to be. Um, you know, for instance, this past season, we, we had two initiatives. We wanted to hit a younger audience. Um, and our two areas we wanted to focus on were YouTube and TikTok. And we got started on YouTube. We had a channel. We just weren't putting content on there very regularly. So we focused on that first. Um, and we were going to then dive into TikTok next uh, when the, the pandemic hit. But uh, we wouldn't have had as much success as we did. And we were able to grow our, um, I think almost double our subscriber count on, on YouTube from where we started. But if we would have spread ourselves thin and tried to produce TikTok content on top of what we were trying to do on YouTube, we wouldn't have had nearly as much success. So I think it's, it's prioritizing and, and, and making a difference before you start biting off more than you can chew. Within social media in particular, there's conversation about kind of health and well-being of the people who are in the space because it's exhausting if you're on it constantly and you kind of do have to and you mentioned during that playoff run it became 24 7 i'm sure early in that season the comments weren't exactly fun to be sifting through how do you manage that team that is in the trenches of that day in and day out to keep it from being overwhelming well, you got to give people breaks first and foremost, and you have to make them feel like they can get away at times. It's very difficult to do. And I, I think what's, what's amazing about the people in our business is they're dedicated to their craft and they, they want to be on top of things. Even if it's, if they have an opportunity for a, a day that's, that's nine to five, they're going to go home and they're going to be looking at, at, what was posted on social media to see how well it's done and to see what the feedback is. Um, so you have to be flexible. You have to understand that uh, you have to encourage people to take time away, take time for themselves. You know, if, if uh, we rolled out something several years ago that uh, you know, if you're, if you're working a game night, there's not an expectation for you to be in the office at eight 30 in the morning, the next day when, when the office officially opens. Um, you know, we collectively work together to make sure things are covered. If we know that, uh, something is coming up or something will be announced or something will happen the very next morning, we make sure we have people on it, but we try to spread things out and encourage people to take time off. Um, you know, not miss big things, not prioritize, um, what their job is over, you know, missing a big family moment, you know, not attending a wedding or, or being there with family at a birthday or something, you know, really encourage those things and just encourage people to, um, you know, be open and honest about uh, when they're, they're stressed and um, we all get things hit at us different times. And so I love that our team has, uh, we, we, we chat often, we have group texts, where we joke around quite a bit um, and I think we're there for each other. And that's a, that's a really important thing to, to have, especially where things are today. And um, you know, moving forward to always have that openness and, and willingness uh, to talk and, and make sure that we're, we're taking care of one another. Going back to your history, you mentioned being the first full-time digital staffer with the Orlando magic. You came in at a time when this digital space was just developing how did you get your foot in the door of working in sports on the digital side yeah you know it's uh it actually started um uh, pete where I, I met you at the, the atp tour um i started with the tour in in 2002 i had previously been an intern the summer of 2000 um and uh, an opportunity came up and, and i came back i loved ponte Vedra beach i love living in the jacksonville area when I was there for the internship. And so it was a, it was a no brainer for, for me to really get that as, as my starting point. I started there as a editor, writer and rankings coordinator was, was my initial role. Um, rankings coordinator piece was, as it sounds, you know, you're, you're running the rankings every week and figuring out uh, where people are with, with points and prize money and, you know, updating the, the draws every week for the results that come in. So the rankings can be run. Um, that was a small part of my job because it, it wasn't a full-time uh, need. Um, the, the other piece was the editor writer side of things. And that was primarily focused on the, the website side and 
um, writing article. Which was more in line with your background, I think, from, from school, right? It was. It was. I graduated a degree in journalism. I actually started sports writing when I was 16. And so up to that point, that's really all I had done is was a lot of writing. Um, but the ATP was kind of bringing their digital presence in-house. Um, they had, it's funny, when I was there in the internship in, in 2000, they were outsourcing their web operations to a German company. And the website was being updated one time per week. So if you oh, think wow. about it, rankings being rankings were run on a Sunday. So a Sunday night, you would send batch files to a company in Germany. They would update the site and the old atptour.org would then be updated on a Monday morning. Holy cow. And so, so and to sidetrack a little bit, 2000, it was updated one time a week. Fast forward two or three years. Now we have live scoring coming from a chair umpire point by point in just a matter of a few years, like, like that happened. But, and that's part of really what excited me about making the digital transition is writing was great. And, and it was, it was what I had done up to that point, but there was something unbelievable happening in the digital space. And so I, you know, I, I along with several other people, in the organization where we're learning HTML, we were learning Photoshop, we were learning all these different skills that we hadn't learned in school in order to start moving forward with this. And had great opportunities when I was there, not only the ATP website, the tour was producing tournament websites at that time. My last two years at the ATP, we actually produced the website for the WTA tour. So I was doing, I was almost exclusively for my last two years doing work with the WTA, which was great. Best of both worlds for me, because I got to work with both the men's and women's tour. Um, and so it just, that experience really opened a lot of doors. And when I, I heard about the opportunity um, with the magic, it was easy for me because I could apply what I had just picked up over the course of four years into an organization that was trying to basically repeat what we had just done in tennis. You have had a couple stops outside of sports organizations. And while you did work with them, with some sports franchises in that work, you also got to work with other companies in the digital space. How important was that to kind of see it all from a different lens to then pivot back into sports? Yeah. So my time between working for the Orlando Magic and the St. Louis Blues, I, I worked for a couple of digital agencies and I did that for, for one main purpose. And it was, I had kind of come up on, on the content side of the business and, and writing and um, producing content. I really wanted to learn the the business of digital and how it was being applied. And so that opportunity to kind of segue and, and better understand um, revenue generation and engagement and, um, you know, all of those things that went into delivering a web product or a social presence that were, were impactful was, was really important for me, I think, as the next part of my career. So even though I would say those three years were the most challenging I've had in my career, they were also very rewarding because I had an opportunity to work with companies like SeaWorld and Universal and Disney, very, very robust um, business challenges that they have there that we didn't have in sports and understand a lot of what went into it. And to me, it was almost like going back to school for a master's degree, but getting paid to do it. And that uh, I, I don't think I would be where I am today um, with the Blues had I, had I not taken that step kind of jumped off of sports for a couple of years to get some deeper experience um, that has been truly, truly amazing for how I've been able to apply things uh, here with the Blues. For someone who's seeking to get into digital media within sports, what advice would you give them? Learn as much as you can. Um, there, are, there are a lot of great resources out there and uh, networking with people um, you know, looking at things that are done, asking questions about why they were done um, is, is always really important. It's, you know, you, you get people from lot, lot, excuse me, lots of um, disciplines that, that come into sports and sport management programs and journalism degrees and other business and marketing programs. Um, they don't always come in with the same skill sets. And so it's, it's very important, I think, to have a, a nice uh, arsenal of tools at your disposal that you can use, but, but really dive into what you feel is most important. You know, if you're, if you want to really do content and um, 
you you want to learn more about using video tools or or using Photoshop and um, you know you you want to deliver great results on social media, commit yourself to that. But, but also learn all those other things because you may want to come into a department and, uh, you know, enter the business in a, a ticket sales role or a sponsorship role or community um, in order to get yourself in the door. And so networking, understanding things, um, getting some great experience, whether it's, it's interning or volunteering someplace is a great starting point. Um, and then beyond that, follow your heart, do, do what you, you, um, you know, you really want to do. I close every episode with the set pieces. And I think some of those resources you talked about may come up in this. Uh, first of all, what are podcasts or newsletters that you use to stay informed and keep learning? You know, I, I have, uh, I haven't listened to any podcasts recently. And I, I tell you that because, you know, I've been working from home for nine months now. And before that, my commute time, which I, you know, I have like a 35, 40 minute commute every day to the office. That was my podcast time. And so I will, you know, I would typically listen to something in the sports business realm or uh, kind of like the, the, the crime murder mystery type uh, podcasts. Um, but uh, so I haven't been doing that as much lately, but newsletters, my, my routine really in the morning is I read morning brew and I read front office sports as my two primary ones. And there's a new one that I recently subscribed to called huddle up. And it dives more into like one primary topic around sports business, which is nice. It's more of an in-depth piece. Um, so that's kind of my starting point to every day. Um, I've tried podcasts at home. I just can't do it. I, I, I end up having to listen to things over and over again because I'll be looking at my computer and completely, uh, you know, miss what's, what's being done. So when, when we're working out of the office again, I'm commuting again, the podcast will get fired back up. Who are your most valuable files on social media? The posts you don't want to have missed. Yeah. You know, I, I, I follow uh, a lot of what Darren Rovell does. I'm always very interested in the sports business side of things uh, on the, the content side of things. Uh, Jess Smith is, is one of the best out there in terms of, you know, delivering best practices across social and things that, that she's seeing. And, um, you know, I'll give a, give a shout out to my friend uh, Adam White and his crew at front office sports, because, um, they have come a long way in the last few years and really built a really, really solid um, news business around uh, sports and, and business practices that are out there. And so Adam and his, uh, his crew of writers that he has on staff would do a f- fantastic job. What are a couple books you'd recommend? The two that I think have been most impactful um, during the last 10 months or so while we've all been home to me, uh, Right of a Lifetime, by Robert Iger, the chairman of Disney, his uh, demonstrating his experience and the things that he learned and, and the process of, as Disney was looking to acquire properties like Marvel and Star Wars is just, is incredible to read about those things and read about what went into it. Um, and then uh, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Um, hearing about the early days of, of Nike and what went into that and I work a lot in um, the sports accelerator space. I, I mentor for some programs. And so I, I see a lot of startups. And so seeing a, a story of a very, very successful company like Nike and the tremendous amount of work in the early years that went into that brand being successful and um, luck playing a big part into that and just getting a break every now and then it's, it's easy to see a successful company and think it was just an idea that just took off and it's, it's not always that case. And so great to read something like that to have a more broad understanding of what it takes to really be successful. What would you consider your cheat code or your best life hack? You know, this, this may sound odd, but uh, to me, it's daydreaming. And I say that because quiet time for ideation, I think is so important. And anytime that you have a few minutes just to brainstorm some ideas or, or think through something, um, to me, it delivers so much value in, in what I do and especially the emerging tech side of, of how I operate now and innovation being a big part of that. Um, just thinking through things, thinking bigger picture into an idea and, and how it can best represent the, the values of the company. And so 
anytime I have a few minutes just to get lost in thought and, and have an idea and, and start to come up with things, I think about it. I use notes on my phone. I jot things down so I don't forget, even if it's just a couple words. But uh, that, that quiet time, that, that time to daydream and, and think things up to me is, uh, is, is so great. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? You know, my memory, I guess, is, is not one particular thing, but it's how I became a fan. Um, a, a little unusual, I think, but uh, my grandmother made me a sports fan. And growing up, she was a tremendous baseball fan. I grew up in Kansas and uh, she would always watch the Kansas City Royals. But not only that, but uh, in the early cable days where um, the Braves were nationally on, on TBS, the Cubs were on WGN, she always had baseball on. And I just really grew up watching lots of baseball with my grandmother um, which then came early 90s. She got into the Chicago Bulls. She was watching those early Bulls teams. She became an NBA fan. Um, I remember like on a Saturday morning, sitting down watching NBA inside stuff with my grandmother. Like, how awesome is that? Um, That's great. And, and from that, you know, I, I became an NFL fan with those early 90s Kansas City Chiefs teams. Um, my alma mater, the K- Kansas Jayhawks, winning the championship in 88. Just little moments like that. But it all began with my grandmother. That's fantastic. Last question for you. Do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking back, um, you know, just thinking off of the, the name of this podcast. And I was first uh, credentialed for an event uh, when I was 16 years old. I was writing for uh, my local newspaper, the Emporia Gazette, and I was credentialed for a like 2A, 3A high school boys and girls league tournament, really, really small tournament. But that was, uh, you know, 25 years ago already, which is just baffling to think about. But (laughs) I keep all my credentials over 25 years. I have them in in three primary locations. Um, The older ones are in a a cabinet in my basement. Um, Some of the more recent ones are in a dresser in my bedroom as I get home and take off a credential and put it on top of my dresser. And then I have a bunch hanging from a hook uh, in my office uh, at Enterprise Center. Matt, I really appreciate the time. There was a a lot to learn here. I'm very jealous of your time spent with the Stanley Cup, but I appreciate you sharing that with us as well as all your experiences over the years in the digital media space. Yeah, thanks, Pete. This was a lot of fun. A big thanks to Matt for sharing so much of his experience with us. One tradition in hockey that I failed to ask him about is the playoff beard, but as you will see in the cover art for this episode, he dutifully did not shave during the Blues' run to the Stanley Cup. If you like what you hear, please do us a favor and leave a rating and review wherever you are listening. Head over to credentialsonly.com for show notes and drop us your email so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. Thanks for checking out this episode, and thanks to Mike Michet for editing each and every episode. Credentials Only is a Holter Media production.